Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there, and welcome back to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan for episode number... 43. And today we have Derek Ryan on the program. Derek Ryan is currently a Calgary Flame. He's in his just completed his second season with the Flames. Uh, his story, if you aren't familiar with Derek, it, his, this is not the first time it's been told, but the hockey world small as it is, is also big enough that sometimes guys with stories like these can be lost. And this is a story that needs to be heard because Derek goes back to the Spokane Chiefs and that's where we have a common alliance. Uh, being a Spokane Chief and coming from that area, this, one of the differences between Derek and I is that he was born in Spokane. So he was a, a Spokane local who uh, grew up in the youth system there and kind of always aspired to be a chief. And he was able to live that dream, but with that dream didn't come the promise of the NHL that, uh, that he might have wanted. And the story here is about Derek leaving Spokane, an accomplished junior player for sure, uh, but with no no draft uh, day story to tell and no free agent uh, signing to tell at the NHL. And he was left to decide to go play Canadian University hockey when he was finished with the WHL. Most guys that uh, decide to do that, I mean, most, I would say almost all uh, at 20 or 21 that go play at a university in, in Canada are not thinking they're going to end up in the NHL. However, Derek obviously did. He he ended up playing four years in Edmonton. He ended up signing a pro deal in Austria, of all places. He ends up signing a deal in Sweden. He ends up signing his first NHL deal and attending his first NHL camp at 28 years old. So from never being drafted, never being recognized, never being offered an NHL deal, he gets a two-way NHL deal at 28, comes back over the pond, uh, enters the AHL, and, uh, and yeah, ends up working his way into a full-time NHL player in his 30s. This does not happen often. I'm, I, I don't want to pretend that uh, anyone can do this. This is a rarity, but it is still a super cool story to chronicle and to tell and, uh, and to understand what it took for Derek to find his way to the NHL. And now with 300 games under his belt, like I said, an accomplished third-line player who's uh, you know established himself as a trusted face-off man, a diverse player that can play up and down the lineup, and uh, and really has cemented himself as an NHLer. It uh, it's a fun one to tell. It's a it was fun to be a part of, and just listening to all the things that made him the player that he was, uh, or is, I should say, and is continuing to develop, uh, to develop to become even better. And I think that's one of the morals of this story, as you will hear, is that when you stack a good day on top of a good day on top of a good day, and that turns into a season, which turns into two seasons, which turns into years, and you keep that 
type of focus and that type of intentionality on your game, uh, you know, while you're, while you're enjoying it, obviously we talk about passion there too, but you know what? Surprise newsflash, you get better. And uh, Derek kept getting better, kept getting better. And now here he is uh, NHL regular. And uh, I can't wait for you to listen to this story. So without further ado, I bring you Derek Ryan. All right, here we are, episode 43 with Derek Ryan. Uh, Derek was gracious enough to say yes to this request over Instagram, even though we've never met uh, Derek. So thanks so much for doing that. I think I buttered you up a little bit with the fact that we both played for Spokane for so long. How could you say no to a to an ex-chief, right? So anyways, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. Definitely the Spokane Chief alumni card helped you out a little bit there. That's uh, <laughs> the blood run deep, runs deep there for Spokane. I'm in Spokane now. It's my home base. I'll always live here. So uh, you touched on a sensitive area there for sure. Smart, smart play by you. Yeah, that's funny. We uh, Well, which is interesting too, because I don't know how you have been with Spokane. Mind you, you are living in Spokane and Spokane is home. So maybe you keep a little tight, uh, you know, your finger on the pulse of the team a little bit more than I do. But I mean, prior to arriving on the scene as a chief, I definitely knew those guys that came before me, right? Especially like right before me, like the Falloons and the Junkers and the Whitney's and Trevor Kidd. And you mean all these guys that were there. So I had my eyes on them and I had a little bit of uh, understanding of the history there. But then once you leave, like I kind of, you know, I, I knew they went to the Memorial Cup and I went back there for that the one year and, and all that stuff. And that was great. But then the farther removed you get, the farther, you know, the more distance there is. So uh, I have to be honest, when when I heard your story from somebody that lives in Spokane, says, you know what, you got to talk to Derek. And I looked and I'm like, oh, my God, like he's on that. You're on your name's on that top 30 Chiefs list. And I was like, how cool is this? So um, maybe we should start there. Like, how how was your experience in Spokane and how did you how did you end up, uh, you know, putting on the putting on the chief jersey? Yeah, um, I guess an interesting story there. I've told it a few times, but I'll talk about it a little bit more. Um Obviously, born and raised in Spokane, grew up playing Spokane Amateur Youth Hockey Association. Um, you know, youth hockey in Spokane was big, I guess, a little bit, but not huge. And it still isn't huge, especially compared to, you know, Canadian markets or whatnot. So, um, you know, being raised in Spokane, you kind of idolize those Spokane Chiefs. That's that's basically like playing in the NHL to a, a youth hockey player in Spokane is to being able to put on that Chiefs jersey. So... Yeah, I, I can definitely um, relate to you and knowing the guys, especially as I got older, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, where those chief guys like Brandon Cote, um, even some of the guys that I played with, uh, the Lynch brothers, you know, Chad Clausen, all these guys that are pretty, you know, pretty cool in my opinion at that time. Like these guys are basically the bee's knees when it comes to hockey players in Spokane. So um i after my my youth hockey journey in spokane i i kind of made it to um where most of the top end players in spokane make it to which is the spokane braves that's a junior b team in the kijhl and and uh, like i just alluded to most of the best players in spokane eventually ended up playing for this organization um was coached by a guy named mike bay he was great kind of old school um, Mike Babcock, Bill Peters kind of mentality, which was probably a little bit grooming for me in my later career, looking back, helped me to be a little more uh, willing to accept some coaching like that. So 
did a great job of um, teaching me the ropes a little bit, showing me what it took to be a good junior player. And um, basically at that point, I was starting to have a lot of success at the junior B level. And uh, my parents were pretty, pretty heavy on school for me, which I was too. School is always super important. It was important for me to get an education. And I kind of turned my back on the Chiefs a little bit at that point, just because I knew or thought I knew I wanted to go to school. And um, uh, my last year at the Braves, I just had a, a ton of success. I remember Tim Speltz coming to games all the time. Uh, Alec Hahn really was the coach at the time. He was coming to games all the time. And it eventually just got to a point where, you know, they offered me, I don't know if they can do this anymore, but they at that time they offered me a, a scholarship where if I signed with them, played with them, I'd automatically be guaranteed my four years of college for free. So at that point, you know, you never know what can happen. Looking back, who knows what would happen if I went the other way, but it's pretty hard to turn down that opportunity to play in your hometown where, like I said before, I was idolizing these guys. This is like the NHL and I get my schooling guaranteed. So, I mean, how does a guy turn that down and, if I do turn that down, try to go junior A and try to go the NCAA route, what happens if I get injured? What happens if I don't do well? And then all of a sudden I turn down that free schooling from the Western League. So right. um, smarter heads prevailed in our household. And we made that decision to, to don the Chiefs uh, sweater and um, definitely not a, a decision that I regret at all. Um, pretty cool to be able to do that in your hometown. I was able to live at home live with my mom and dad and just have a great experience at home playing for a great organization. Yeah. There's a storied franchise and one of the best in junior hockey for sure. You know, and you mentioned Tim Spelt's name there already. He was a fantastic manager. Uh, he was there th through my time as well. Always brought in uh, pretty quality people. You know, I think in the dressing room, that was a uh, character was always a pretty big highlight for them. And, and even the coaches that came through there, you know, people don't always agree with, with everything, uh, but like, you know, Brian Maxwell was one of the best coaches I had and we didn't see eye to eye all the time, but he was a, he was a heck of a, a teacher's coach. And then, you know, Mike Babcock came in there. We also know what happened with Babs and Bill Peters. And, you know, they always seemed to bring in some, some pretty good, uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is, teachers, educators, you know, to, to help groom these guys for, for a pro game. So I definitely have a lot, lots to be grateful for with my time in Spokane. You, you mentioned on your, on your Braves coach though, you said that he, he taught me uh, what it took to be a good junior. What, uh, what do you, what were some of those lessons that you remember from, from your time there playing for, with the Braves? Yeah. I mean, just to kind of piggyback off what you were talking about there before with Brian Maxwell, Babs and Bill Peters and my coach in junior B then Mike Bay. I mean, these guys that are coaching at this level, they're more than just hockey teachers, right? They're, they're teaching, and helping to, to develop young men who are, you know, anywhere between 15 and 20 years old, which is a huge time in your life where you're trying to figure life out. Um, you're playing in the Western Hockey League, so you're you're a bit glorified in certain cities, Spokane for sure, no different, where you're kind of put on a pedestal and it's hard for some kids to handle that. I mean, it's, uh, it's a unique situation and I think the coaches have a, a unique job in order to kind of groom these kids to you know, not let their egos get too inflated, kind of keep them in, in reality and also help them to to progress in real life, whether it's um, taking their schooling seriously, if they're still in high school or maybe taking a couple of college courses and they're 19 and 20, 
after their high school days, you know, helping them through these, helping them make real, real life decisions at this point in your life, which is pretty hard. So, um, yeah, some of the lessons that Mike was able to instill upon me was just coming to the rink every day um, and getting and making myself better. He he taught me at a young age where I was probably one of the more talented guys on the team, which um, don't want to sound bragging. It's just Spokane. Uh, so it's not like I was a, a huge national commodity or anything like that. But he he taught me to come to the rink, even though I was one of the more talented guys. And he taught me to come to the rink to, to work and to get better every single day. And I mean, that's a lesson that seems so simple, almost a little bit cliche. But at the same time, I couldn't tell you how many guys I've seen in my career, all the way from my Spokane Braves days to you know, now playing in the NHL or playing the American Hockey League, I've seen so many guys where they're a lot more talented than I am, where they're a lot more talented than a lot of guys are in the NHL, but they don't they don't make it to the NHL because they don't have that work ethic and they don't have that mental strength that it takes to to play day in and day out. And at the NHL level, I mean, it doesn't get any harder than that where it's it's a grind of a season, it's eighty two games. You're coming to the rink six or seven times a week, six or seven days a week, and you just have to have that mentality to come into the rink every day to get better and to not take days off. And and uh, like I said, I saw a lot of guys kind of fail at that, and I think that's the reason they never really made it to the highest level they could have. That's a great that's a great lesson and one that uh, one that I can I can share my own perspective on because I remember that after, as I came to be a pro. That was almost when I stopped thinking that I could develop more. Uh, and it wasn't a conscious thought, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm done, you know, but it was just like, cause you're, now you're getting paid for it right now. It becomes a job. Now it's about wins and losses. And I kind of stopped thinking about personal development and what it took for me to get better and to improve. And in some aspects, I think I actually got worse. Whereas it sounds like your, your trajectory, you obviously kept getting better and you kept improving and you use that philosophy. So, um, yeah, I, I can relate to what you're saying there, you know, and, and it wasn't like I said, it wasn't conscious, but it was like you do need to have a personal philosophy built into you that you want to get better every day. Well, and, it's just uh, human nature, right? I mean, you make it to the pros and you're like, oh, well, I made it. Here I am. You know, whether you're in yeah. the NHL or the American Hockey League, you're still getting paid to play hockey, which is a pretty cool feeling no matter who you are. So it's yeah, it's just human nature to feel like, hey, here I am. I'm, I'm here for a reason. I'll just keep doing that. What are some of the things um, I do want to unpack a couple of the things you said there, but I think just move, we'll just go with the, the getting better for now. So like when you, if you could say in your own approach then, so now, you know, you said you learned this as a junior and then you, you maybe as a chief and then maybe at U of A and then maybe at Austria in Austria, like wherever, wherever this took you, what did that look like for you in your day? Were you a guy that showed up early for practice, left late? Were you always doing stuff away from the rank or were you just trying to make the most of your time whenever you were on the ice or around the guys? Yeah, I'm definitely a guy that shows up early, um, especially at the NHL level. There's some certain things that you can be doing. The The workouts are usually, um, you know, moderately optional, I guess. You can do them or you don't have to do them. And I'm I'm a kind of guy that thinks I need to be doing that, especially um, at the NHL level where guys are just bigger and faster and stronger than anywhere else. That's super important. <clears throat> but um, I think that it's kind of hard to, to really explain, but I think that it's really important for kids and guys even at the professional level to, 
to not float through every day. It's pretty easy. Like I said, you get this, this long season. It's a grind where you're playing a bunch of games and you have practices in between. It's easy to just kind of show up at the rink, um, especially when you have some familiarity with the coach, the coaching systems, the practices and the drills. It's pretty easy to almost shut your brain off a little bit, just go through the motions, get through drills, and then that's another day, right? And then you, you look forward to your next game, whereas uh, I was taught at a young age that, you know, every day can make a difference and every drill has a purpose. So if you're going out there with a true intent to get better in every drill and everything that the coach is trying to make you do, you know, there's a reason behind that. And it all sounds super cliche, but it's actually really hard to do in real life when, you know, you're in the heat of a season and it's just tiring, your body's tired, whatever you got in late last night, you had a long flight, whatever it was, it's it's a grind. So to be there mentally every day um, is actually harder than it, it would seem, I guess. No, I, I couldn't agree more. It's one of the things that we talk about on this show a lot. And even, you know, with the kids I work with, whether it's on a team or, or privately, is that that level of intention that you just mentioned there is like, it, it doesn't get talked about enough. I really don't think it does. Uh, like even, even you said, you mentioned a cliche. I don't, I don't think a lot of coaches are going there, but like, yeah, every drill has a, re, has a purpose and every, I mean, you, you can apply a different level of intentionality. that's even beyond the practice, right? So the coach is doing something, but if you arrive at the rank with an idea of like, this is what I want to get better at. Now you're focused on trying to do that and you're there for a reason. And, you know, some people term it deliberate practice, right? Is, is more effective than just practice. Um, so if you can, if you can provide that uh, level of deliberateness, um, my God, like I see it, I see it now in my kids. I see it even in me, right at 44, not that I'm trying to be pro anymore, but like if you put a level of effort in with some intention, man, like you get a lot better, a lot quicker. It's crazy. So I'm glad you mentioned that. That's cool. You also mentioned earlier, which I think is a really cool thing that we should talk about is the ability to maybe coast when you're one of the better guys. And he mentioned being, you know, part uh, in Spokane. I don't really care where you're from. I guess if you're from a bigger place and a bigger uh, ecosystem, you have a little bit more comparables, right? So maybe there's probably going to be more competition. But I still think it's the same. If you're one of the best in your team, especially at a young age, it's easy to feel a bit superior. And it's easy to take a day off. And it's easy to, to uh, not be, feel grateful for where you're at. How do you, how did you learn that? Or what was the lesson that taught you that, you know what? I still got to push here and I still got to try and get better. I don't know if it was just myself doing that. It was almost like I had to do it to survive. And I think that we'll probably unpack that as we go through my journey a little bit. And anyone that's listened to this, that knows my journey at all, will will know what I'm talking about. But I mean, I'm in the, with the Spokane Braves and then I've jumped to the Spokane Chiefs. And I remember, I remember my first couple of games with the Spokane Chiefs. I'm like, wow. I have to go all out every day, every shift. I can't just float like I could in, in junior B and still have success. Like this is going to be really, really hard. And then I go from there to the U of A, uh, which Canadian University, maybe people don't know, is actually really, really good, super underrated. And it's the same thing. Like, wow, this is a big step. I'm really going to have to work hard to be my best every single day. I go from there to professional levels in Europe. Uh, in Austria to begin with, same thing. Now I'm playing pro. Now I'm playing for keeps. All the guys I'm playing against, they're playing for keeps, playing for paychecks. And that's a big change. And then it just progressed from there. Sweden, American Hockey League, NHL, uh, you know, bubble NHL or to full-time NHL. Or it's always this whole progression. I was kind of forced in my own journey 
to always be pushing myself and getting better because if I didn't, then I wouldn't have survived, right? I wouldn't have, or at least I wouldn't have flourished. Maybe I would have stayed where I was and had a career in Austria or Sweden or whatever it was. But if I wouldn't have pushed myself to get better each and every day in each and every season, then, I mean, you, we wouldn't be here talking about my journey, right? Like we are today. Right. Yeah. Well, no, good for you. And, and you kind of went through it right there. I mean, maybe we should get into that a little bit. Uh, and, and you talked about getting to Spokane. So you get, you arrive, you arrive in the scene in Spokane, hometown kid, uh, and we're a contributor for sure. Like a big contributor. I mean, you're, you're, um, one of the team leaders and points there. You mean you weren't throwing up, you mean, to be honest, you weren't throwing up huge numbers when it came to junior numbers, right? But you're still leading the team and you were a big cog in that wheel. And during that draft year, let's say, uh, there's two things I want to talk about because I know you're a late birthday too. And I want to uh, know about the significance of that, that, that played on you in your career. But uh, when was the draft something that you were like expected to get drafted? Did you, I mean, I assume you wanted to get drafted, but where was your expectation level around that? And what was your draft year like? Yeah, certainly interesting to look back on that. So I was an 18-year-old rookie in the Western Hockey League, so that was my first year. Had a pretty good year. I was, I don't know, Western Conference Rookie of the Year. Um, ended up losing to a goalie from Brandon Plant, I think. Plant, I can't remember who it was. He won goalie, the Rookie of the Year. So, you know, kind of being in that Rookie of the Year discussion uh, helped me out a little bit and thought maybe there was an outside chance of getting drafted. Um, but it ended up not happening. I remember a day or so after the draft, I got an email from our coach with the Chiefs who had just gotten let go. They were bringing Bill Peters on as Al Conroy. He just got let go, and he's a smaller guy, played in the NHL, and kind of had a, a similar style of play to me. And I remember him just saying, you know, that, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. You didn't get drafted. A lot of guys that do get drafted, that's just the beginning and, you know, they don't end up making it. And then a lot of guys that don't get drafted, that's just the beginning and they end up having great careers, you know, future Hall of Famers potentially even. So um, he basically just reiterated the point to me that, you know, this that's not the end of the journey. That's not the deciding factor here. And just to put things in perspective a little bit, we have to remember this was, I don't even know what this year this was, my draft year, but a long time ago. And NHL teams were looking big at this point. And I was a small, skilled forward. It wasn't really the, the NHL prototype, I guess you could say, that they were looking more for guys that had size and then maybe they could turn them into the hockey player they needed them to be more so than the, the smaller, skilled guy and see if he can play in the NHL. So it was tough for me. I definitely got overlooked. And I think I continued to get overlooked throughout my my career for sure. And especially my career with the chiefs. I mean, my, my 19 and 20 year old year, I years, I, I led the team in scoring and both years and, you know, had some success, wasn't throwing up huge numbers, but at the same time, you know, pretty good to lead, lead the team in scoring. So um, definitely an underdog, I guess, uh, starting to, to be born at this part in the journey. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And maybe, uh, maybe we'll get into, well, that whole aspect of like, when, when did you start feeling that you maybe were like, was there ever any resentment? Did you ever feel like, why not me? Uh, how, how come, how come I, I'm not getting a shake here? And did that start uh, building a little bit of a chip on your shoulder? I don't think so. As I look back, I kind of remember just being pretty happy to be there. You know, I was playing my hometown team. 
I was doing pretty well, having a lot of success, playing in all the key moments, kind of one of the top dogs, uh, you know, assistant captain, all these things. And the NHL was kind of a, a far off dream still at this point. I, I obviously wanted to play in the NHL, but at the same time, I think I was just living in the moment, enjoying um, life at home, playing in the Western Hockey League and and just kind of living in that moment. So I don't think I felt any you know, resentment or like, ah, I should be playing in the, I should have been drafted in the NHL or whatever it is at this point in my career. Anyways, I don't think I felt that. Did, um, I did mention your birthday. So I, I, there's, there's some definitely a lot of listenerships is either parents of this or, or youth hockey players growing up. And I know having a later birthday and one of two of my sons qualify as that too. Um, one of them's going to have a birthday here at the end of November I mean, it's a big difference for a long time, right? Because you're you're playing you're playing catch up, and you mentioned yourself that you're not necessarily a big guy to begin with, so you're an undersized guy. And I'm sure at the youth level growing up, you know, it was even more and more apparent uh, when you were younger. What type of a factor did that play for you, uh, you know, on your hockey on your hockey journey? Yeah, I think it's probably been talked about a lot, but it's definitely hard. And I, I better watch what I say. My my son, my firstborn, he's six, and he's uh, December twelfth birthday, so he's uh, following in the same footsteps as me. And I'm even seeing him at the eight U level. He's uh, the younger guy on the ice. I mean, he's the youngest guy on the team, smallest guy on the team, and I think I was pretty much in the same boat where. You know, you're always playing against kids that are one or two years older than you. And you know what? I mean, whatever. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that pushed me to get better and to be more feisty. I know maybe not me, but my son's maybe a little more feisty than than most, just uh, getting bumped around by the bigger kids. And that I think that competitive nature that's in him kind of gets out a little bit when that's happening. So, um I mean, that being said, obviously it's an uphill battle. It's tough. It's the kids that are born in January, February, March definitely have a significant advantage in that regard. But at the same time, I think most, um, you know, hockey minds and scouts and whatever, they're, they're aware of that. So it's not something that just gets brushed under the rug anymore. I think that that birth dates are, they're well aware of that. And that comes into the equation. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was fo- I've been following the Bantam draft a little bit closer and, it, and it's it's actually still really heavily drafted like the first three months of the year is crazy because, well, I mean, I assume just because of the physical nature, right? You're even at 15 years old, right? I shouldn't say even. I mean, you, you have so much developing left to do on a physical level. Uh, some guys mature than others that it's that it's easy to kind of look at the kid who's really big and strong like right now and not think this guy might get bigger and stronger. So um I do. I do think that it's like you said. It could be a good thing though, because you are you are chasing. You know, you are you are in a scenario where you're where you're a little bit behind, and you have to you have to show up. I think it's the only time is the advantage is in the NHL draft when you finally get that extra year of junior. You know, like yep. that's the only time that it becomes now a, an advantage. You get an extra year under your belt for most guys, and, and they have a little bit more uh, you know experience in the league and feel a little more comfortable, probably in a little different role. Uh, some of these guys, right, having a late birthday, but. Um, I want to talk a little bit about you getting into the U of A because now you've played there, you've played, you've been successful there. Was a pro contract angled at any point? Like, what, did you say no to a pro to a pro job and then go to university, or was it the only option? Yeah, this is an interesting crossroads in the journey, and we'll see a couple of other crossroads too um, that are interesting to look back at now that I'm here, you know, in the NHL. 
these crossroads are just so important. But at the same time, I'm I mean, here. I am 20 years old and trying to make a life, <clears throat> a life-altering decision. Um, you know, obviously the parents helping me out and whatnot. But um, yeah, I had some pro opportunities, but mostly minor minor leagues. Obviously, like East Coast League, something like that. I never really had a full-time, full-on American Hockey League opportunity. If I would have had that, it probably would have changed the decision a little bit. But just having the those East Coast League um, offers, I think it was almost a no-brainer. Like, hey, like I said before, schooling is super important. I don't want to just throw that away by going to play in East Coast League for a year or two or whatever to figure things out. And um, so I think it was pretty evident right away when – I was making those decisions with my parents, you know, I want to use my schooling and um, I was ignorant at the time too. Like most people are, I wasn't fully aware of, of uh, CIS, which is currently U sports, I guess the Canadian university league, which is actually a really, really good league. And I think it's gotten better even since I've left. So um, it was, it was an interesting time. I was getting some interest from a couple of different schools, UBC, uh, university of Alberta, university of New Brunswick, some of the top programs and great schools and top hockey programs in the country. And it was a hard decision, but we ended up making the decision to go to Edmonton mostly because it was close to home. Um, the U of A hockey program kind of speaks for itself. It's the number one program has the most national championships, uh, a great school, you know, top 50 university in the world. And um, I think at this point I was a little sick of losing too. I, I'd spent a lot of time losing with the Spokane Chiefs. I, I had a pretty good career there and, you know, led the team in, in scoring twice, but only made it to the playoffs two out of my four years and both of those years eliminated in the first round. So it didn't have a lot of, of winning success and I, I was sick of that. So I wanted to go to a program where, where I wanted to win and I thought the U of A kind of gave me that best opportunity to do that, which which it did. I ended up winning the national championship once and going to the national tournament all four years. So that definitely played into the equation as well. But I don't know, it's just crazy to look back on these crossroads now and feel like, you know, if I would have made a different decision, it would have turned out differently. You know, who knows? Yeah, well, there's two choices there that I wouldn't mind you expanding on. One is you didn't mention any U.S. schools and you're an American kid. Like, was that part of what Spokane, was Spokane not prepared to pay for a U.S. school or or why was yeah. it just Canadian hockey you were looking at? Yeah, they would have, but at that point I would have had to stop playing hockey. So I, I couldn't go to U.S. school and continue to play hockey because of my NCAA scholarship was burnt, obviously, by playing in Western Hockey League. So at that point I wasn't ready to give up on hockey. I wanted to still play hockey and Canadian University basically gave me my only options to do that and go to school at the same time so so even if you pay then that was one thing that, that you're educating me that i thought that this i knew the scholarships were not were not like you were ineligible for a scholarship if you if you laced up uh, for the whl team but i thought you could still play in the league you just wouldn't wouldn't be eligible for a scholarship but that's not true that's not true yeah i don't know if that's still true i'm pretty sure it is i'd say 99 percent sure but there's yeah i couldn't have gone to school and play hockey in the u.s so the, the the next one is so you had these you had these job opportunities potentially in the East Coast League or like some of these leagues. Uh, school sounds like was the biggest determining factor because and correct me if I'm wrong. I would I mean, geez, maybe that's maybe I might be wrong there, but I'm not many guys come out of CIS and go play in the NHL, right? First oh, of all, so that was your dream. Yeah, 
Yeah, right? I mean, some guys do it in the East Coast League, but there's not that many people that do that either. So I'm just wondering, like, from a hockey standpoint, and you like thinking down the road future, was it more about like life future at that point? Hey, I can play hockey and get my education, or did you actually think that was the best hockey route as well? Uh, I think more of the, the latter there were, yeah, this is the best life decision. I can continue to play high level hockey, um, have some success and win as a team and probably go on from there. If I do really well and play some sort of minor professional or professional in Europe is probably more of the mindset at that point. I'm 90% sure that would be more of the chance, more of the likelihood than playing, you know, minor pro in North America, but definitely more of a life decision where, okay, this, I can go and get an education and then afterwards, you know, maybe enter the real world and, and get a real job. Right. Before we leave the chiefs, I, I guess I got, we got to ask about the nickname because uh, you know, you could have put in whatever name you wanted there on, on the screen and you chose doc. So uh, can you give us the, the genesis here of doc? And I think that's still a nickname that, that you have today, correct? Yeah. That's what I get called in the flames dressing room. Basically if you're like a, an original friend from way back in the Spokane Braves days, then most guys, from those days, we'll call me DR. That was my nickname going forward. And I think it was my first camp uh, in Spokane with the Chiefs. I was, I don't know, 16 or 17 years old. Uh, one of those dressing room rituals where you kind of go around the dressing room and say who you are, where you're from, and your nickname. And so there I am, you know, hey, I'm Derek Ryan. My nickname's DR. And it was one of the older Lynch brothers. I think it was Scott Lynch. He stood up and said, DR? We're not going to call you DR. We're going to call you Doc because your initials are DR. And for whatever reason, it just stuck. That was it for the, I mean, Bill Peters just took that and ran with it. Al Conroy did and all the boys did. And from there on, the rest is history. I'm Doc. <laughs> oh, I love the genesis of hockey nicknames. Sometimes sometimes there's a huge story. Sometimes it's just as flippant as what you just said there. Just somebody says it at the right time and it sticks. I love it. Uh, that's great. So you hit... Um, you hit the CIS. You've mentioned you mentioned that that was good hockey there. I, I have to admit, I've never watched a game of CIS hockey, so I, I have no idea what that's what that's like. But you definitely had success there, and I noticed you were recognized, um, you know, within the league as being one of the best, if well, one of the better, if not the best players in it. Uh, you had a former teammate with you there as well, by the name of Chad Clausen, I believe. If I got yep. if I did my research right on that, did that have any uh, bearing on you going there? Uh, yeah, a little bit for sure. I remember I played with Chad quite a bit when my Spokane Chiefs days, we were line mates. So I talked to him quite a bit before, you know, committing to the U of A and he had a lot of good things to say. And there were some other guys there too, um, Crimusa. And I mean, there's the, the U of A was basically filled with ex-WHL guys that led their team in scoring that just never got that NHL opportunity. There's Tyler Metcalf, Ian McDonald, Dylan Stanley, and you guys probably have no idea who these names are, but go on Elite Prospect and look them up. And they had some legit, I mean, Chad Clawson had a 90-point year in the Western Hockey League before before I was there. So this, I mean, these are legit top and high-end players in the Western Hockey League that just were like me, that just never got that opportunity at, with an NHL contract and, and didn't want to waste their schooling. So it, it was filled with super high-end players. Right. I was actually going to ask you that. I mean, I didn't know if you were buddies with him or not, but, you know, you guys had similar stats, um, you know, in, in Spokane when you guys played together. He had the one year before you uh, before you arrived. That was a big year for him, like you mentioned already, that 97-point year. Uh, and then when you guys were together in Edmonton, had similar similar stat, stat lines. 
Uh, you've obviously continued on and now have a three-year contract with the Calgary Flames, and I don't know what Chad's doing, uh, but he didn't have much of a pro career. Could Were you similar players? Uh, and if so, what do you think made the difference for you being able to go uh, where you've ended up? Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't know if that's been touched on a lot, so that's good. Um, so, yeah, Chad and I are pretty similar. I was the centerman, obviously. He's the winger, so I think that might have had a little bit to do with it. Um, but from my perspective, this is kind of how the story went. Uh, he played five years at the U of A. He was there one year before me. I played four years. So we're, our, both of our careers at the U of A were finished at the same year. And um, we were both looking to play uh, some sort of European professional hockey after our careers. And there was a team in Sikesh Behervar, Hungary, in the Austrian league that was looking for one forward, one you know, a highly talented offensive forward. Um, the coach there was a University of Alberta graduate. So the alumni connection came through there and he ended up calling my coach, mine and Chad's coach from the U of A, uh, Eric Thurston, and asked for a recommendation. And, and Thirsty at this point gives the recommendation to me, um, you know, talk about crossroads before he could have said, Chad, he could have said somebody else, but he says, you know, this Derek Ryan kid's the one you want and and so this team in Hungary and the Austrian league you know ends up signing me and and I get that opportunity to start there for a full season kind of jump start my my professional career my European professional career and and uh, if you look at the hockey DB or the elite prospects you'll see that Chad ended up there at the end of that season um, kind of towards the playoffs and he played there and had some pretty good success and played well but, you know, it's a lot harder to jump onto a new team, you know, mid-season slash almost playoff time and, and have a profound effect, whereas I had that whole season to kind of adjust and, and um, have a bigger effect over the longer, longer period. So I don't know if it was a huge difference, if it would have mattered, but um, pretty crazy to think about, you know, if uh, Thirsty would have recommended someone else or Chad over myself or whatever it is. Right. So I get that yeah. opportunity and uh, the rest is free. Wow, that's pretty wild. I mean, I reflect on that a little bit myself, and it's come up here before, and it's it's one of those things that you can't you can't fake. And now I'm talking about the relationship, right? The the building the relationship with with the coach or with an assistant coach. You know, it, it has to come naturally. You can't force it. You can't be ingenuine about it. But it is so damn important that you earn the trust of that guy who's blowing the whistle at practice and who's calling your name on the on the bench and. Because of times just like that, like you said, I mean, he could have said somebody else easily, and who knows where Derek Ryan is at this point, right? If that if that phone call goes a little bit differently, um, and it happens time and time again that people need people to go to bat for them. How do you, in your mind, think like how do I build trust with my coach? Like, what would be the lesson to kids out there to be able to do that and to, to be the guy that when he answers the phone, he's going to say their name? Yeah, that's a really good thought, really good question. I think that's really important for kids, and it's been really important for me in my career. I mean, we'll get there later, but Bill Peters, instrumental in my original NHL existence, really, and the same kind of thing. But, I mean, I've never been the player that's, like, um, you know, really buddying up to the coach. I think that my play in itself is what really lends itself for coaches liking me and appreciating me. Um, I think it goes back a little bit to what I talked about before, how I'm showing up every single day uh, practice in the weight room and on game, ga game day as well to, to make myself better. Um, coaches notice those things. It might, not, might seem minuscule to us, 
it might seem minor, but <clears throat> these are the little details that coaches are noticing day in and day out. And I think that, I mean, it was no different with Mike Bay at the junior B level, Bill Peters and the Spokane Chiefs, Eric Thurston at the U of A. Um, they all spoke really highly of me, not to pump my own tires, but because of the player I was, because of what I brought to the rink every day, what I brought to the dressing room every single day. And I think those those actions speak, speak louder than anything, any kind of, um, you know, fake or forced relationship you can have off the ice with the coach. It all happens, you know, between the whistles, uh, you know, on the practice rink and on the game rink. Yeah. Yeah. I encourage anyone I talk to, like, I mean, I don't, I don't mind conversation. I think obviously that's fine. That's being human. That's being, you know, personable. Usually you want to let a head coach to approach you um, or any coach generally. I mean, when you're talking about just niceties and, and general conversation, but I do encourage guys to include the coach on their journey. And I think that's one thing that people get a little bit fearful of uh, is that approach and saying, Hey, you know, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to get. How do I get better? I think coaches like hearing that as long as you're willing to back up what they tell you, you know, and I think you you can expose yourself a little bit there if you don't go to work and, and have the accountability. But I, I do encourage guys to have that because I mean, people want to be a part of a dream, right? People want to be a part of something, uh, something cool. You, you doing what you did, you know, I, I know personally, I'm sure you've seen it now being a dad that you kind of, you root for guys, you know, there's, there's guys you want to root for. And if you can be a guy uh, th that people want to root for, my goodness, it helps you. And I, and I think involving people in that journey and in that dream is a good way to do it. Do you, do you think that's an okay approach as well? Yeah, I think so. I think coaches definitely want to be a part of that and they want to hear um, players say that. I think you're pretty accurate when you say you expose yourself there. I think that there's a lot of people that I can think of off the top of my head, players that I play with that that speak that way, that talk the talk, but then don't have the actions to back that up. Like, hey, yeah, I want to do whatever it takes to win. <clears throat> I want to do whatever it takes to make the NHL. But then when push comes to shove, they're really not willing to do any of that to, to win or to play in the NHL or to be the best or whatever it is, whatever part of life they're in. And I think that um, your human nature, your human characteristics will show eventually anyways. I don't think you can fake it. You can't force it. It's just who you are. And and if that's who you are, then coaches and leaders and teachers and whoever parents are going to appreciate and like you for those reasons. Yeah. If when, So when you, you're in the U of A, you're doing well in the U of A, you, you find this pro, you find this pro contract. Uh, at, at what point or at any point was the NHL like either in the rearview mirror? Was it still like on your, on your radar? Was it someplace you thought you could end up uh, or like walk me through that as far as your own dream, your own belief system? Yeah, not for a few years at this point. When I signed that first pro contract in Austria, this is basically, a, um, I'm recently married to my wife. I think we've been married one year at this point. Um, this is like a one-year experiment where we'll go to Sikesh Vahervar. It takes us three months to figure out how to pronounce the town name. <laughs> and uh, we'll go to this, this city in Hungary, which is like 45 minutes outside of Budapest. Um, you know, kind of a cool experience for a young married couple, nonetheless, no matter how the hockey goes, a cool experience to be able to travel the world a little bit, experience a different culture. Um, and we'll just try it out. Maybe I have success in hockey, but we don't like living over there and we don't have to continue to do it. Or maybe I don't have success hockey wise and it doesn't continue anyways, or maybe it works out and we love it and we'll just play in Europe and I'll try to carve out a, a hockey career over there for as long as I can. But the NHL at this point, 
Um, I'd say would be thrown out the window probably when I decided to go play Canadian University in my own mind at this point. That's how I thought. And it didn't come back onto the radar for a few years after this, I wouldn't say. Gotcha. Do you know the stat of people who have started in the Austrian League and ended up in the NHL? I mean, you have to be one of a very short list, like I would assume. I mean, I can think of some Austrian players that grew up there, Michael Grabner, Michael Raffle, um, but guys that actually like North American guys that started there and played in the NHL, I, I think I might be the only one. I could be wrong, but Right. there's got to be count them on one hand for sure yeah that's cool uh yeah so i had some experience overseas too i went to germany maybe i guess maybe about the same time i, mean, I was 26 i played six years pro over here and then i was kind of my idea of going over there was just sort of felt like i wasn't getting my shot you know like i i was the i was the flashy guy when i was 20 21 22 and then you kind of seemed like you're getting forgotten about and overlooked and i was like well you know what i'm gonna go overseas have a good year hopefully and then come back like that was kind of my idea um of of what i was going to do and then actually just ended up like really enjoying it like you said like the experience uh around the hockey and the hockey itself were both like big pluses for me uh i had been i'd been traded a lot i'd been on different teams like the, the stability was nice the paycheck was also nice um, and the experience was nice and ended up, they offered me a two-year extension my first year and I ended up signing it. And for me, that was sort of when it was like, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to be in the NHL anymore. You know, I had to kind of, I thought I was letting that dream die. And I, I guess I didn't really have to, but that was sort of where I turned turned my own switch on on that NHL dream. What, you ended up lighting it up in Austria, right? You ended up getting real comfortable there, ended up lighting it up, ended up winning the, uh, I believe, the MVP of the league. And is that when, like... How did you get scouted then for for uh, for Swedish? Is, is that how that worked? Like, do, the, do those leagues over there scout each other and your name was just kept floating up to the top and somebody wanted a PC and get you out of that league? Yeah, pretty much. But I think it's pretty, it can't be overstated how, how unlikely, we talked about how unlikely it is to make it from Austria to the NHL. And it may not be equally as unlikely, but pretty close to make it from Austria to Sweden is pretty unlikely as well. There's more guys that have done that, but... At the same time, Austria is kind of <clears throat> maybe middle of the road, entry level, professional, European level. And then the Aust or the Swedish league, sorry, is, I mean, the Swedish league is probably one of the best leagues in the world. It's uh, It goes NHL, KHL in Russia, and then SHL in Sweden, in my opinion. That's the third best league in the world. So they're pretty, they're pretty strict and uh, picky about what guys they allow coming over there. And for a guy like myself, um, you know, they typically prefer guys that have better North American resumes. And my North American resume at this point is Western Hockey League and University of uh, Alberta, which to them is like, what's that? Uh, it's like a men's league or whatever. They have no idea what that is. So they prefer guys that have, you know, some sort of NHL experience or a lot of American League experience, which I had neither at that point. So for me to get the opportunity to go from the Austrian league to Sweden was actually a really big jump as well. And um, the team in Sweden making a pretty big uh, risk, I guess I should say, in signing me um, to come play there too. So it was a, that was an exciting time to be able to make that jump. It wasn't just like a, Hey, I can have a great career in Austria. This is turning into, I can, you know, be in one of the top leagues in the world, one of the top leagues in Europe, make really good money. And um, you know, this European career thing could probably turn out. Cool. So that was a pay raise then for you to go from go to Austria to Sweden? Yeah, it's about twice, about double, double the salary. Um, 
And so that's, that was a big deal for sure. The two-year contract, one of the kind of the smaller teams in Sweden, but still a pretty good opportunity. So that was, that was a big deal to make that jump. Cool. So then, so you, your success there, I mean, I assume you had an agent, a European agent. So like they, they, they would have contacted him or your coach or kind of the same scenario. What's this guy like? I'm sure they did some homework on you, saw you play and, and then made you the offer and, and, uh, and off you went. Yeah, pretty much. And there's similar things going on where there's another team involved. Um, kind of one of the more premier teams in, uh, in Sweden and Lake Sand, a super small city, but um, they're kind of like the Toronto Maple Leafs in the NHL where they have fans everywhere. They come to our mm-hmm. rink and, you know, 70% of the fans were Lake Sand fans. And that first year in Sweden, I kind of caught a lot of grief from them for not signing with them because everything, I guess, is public here in the NHL too, but everything is public there in terms of who's signing with who and guys sign with different teams for the next year during the middle of the season. And it's just a little different in Europe than it is in North America. So the, I caught a lot of heat from the press and the fans over there for doing that. And um, obviously still one of those crossroads again, but that team ended up getting relegated to the, the second Swedish league after my first year in Sweden. And, and right. uh, we ended up making the playoff and whatnot. So that is a cool point that maybe we should just, or I should mention, I don't know if many of the listeners know, but yeah, in, in Europe, I mean, in lots of places in Europe, and I know for, for sure in, in German Germany where I was that, at any point during the season, another team can sign you for the next season. So like it happened all the time. So you'd be playing with a guy on your team who you knew was going to be on another team the next year. Like it's so absurd. It seems so weird, right? (laughs) Even like, yeah, like, I don't know, you got to question intent sometimes and motive and, you know, like all these things, it it, it makes the whole scenario kind of weird. So yeah, my own scenario, like my own team signed me, which is a little more normal, like that at least happens in North America. But um the fact that another team can sign you is super weird. You mentioned, I love the fact you put a hierarchy on the leagues. And I think that we should maybe dig into that a little bit because that's a, uh, an interesting discussion topic because you have played in a, in a few of them. Now, I guess you haven't played in the KHL, but you know guys that have come from there. You have played in the Swedish League, but you've also played in the American League. You never put American League on there. Would American League be fourth then, in your opinion? And, and it kind of surprised me that you didn't have it maybe a notch or two higher. Well, that's a really good question. It's really hard to make that comparison. I, I have this conversation. I especially had this conversation on when I was playing in the American League, when I was playing with guys there. Um, so NHL for sure, KHL for sure second. Um, I think the Swedish League is better. I think the Swedish League is is more talented than the American Hockey League. Um, I don't know if this is a straight apples to apples comparison because um, – as most people probably know, the, the style of play in Europe is so much different. The rink size is, I don't know what it is, 15 feet wider. <clears throat> the, the zones are way bigger. So that just lends itself to be a completely different style of play. Um, you know, there's way more puck possession, way more skill, way more uh, you know, talent, and I guess uh, use of that talent, I should say. Whereas mm-hmm. in the American League, the American League is tough. It's tough to rank the American League because it's such a, a unique place where um, guys are just kind of running around like chickens with their head cut off, trying to kill guys and trying to get noticed and just trying to stand out a little bit. Whereas I rank the Swedish league higher because it's a lot more structured. I think it plays a lot more like the NHL in terms of how structured it is, how defensive it is, how hard it is to create offense, unless you're a high end, high end player that can make those plays in little areas. And so that's why I rank Sweden higher than the American league. I think it's harder to, to score and, and to be a producer in the Swedish hockey league. 
than it is the American Hockey League. Interesting. That's cool. And I'm, I'm, and not that this is a challenge at all, but I find it interesting that you actually had more success from a point standpoint in Sweden than you did in the in the American League. Um, totally. And maybe that's just indicative of like, you know, I don't know, style of play, who your teammates were, who your line mates were, like who knows? There's a lot of factors that can go into that. But the American League is a tough place to I think it's more mistake prone probably is what I would say. You know, like there's yeah. it's younger guys. Right. And I think you mentioned it being almost like a junior all-star team at the CIS. And I think that's even more so in the AHL, right? You have all these guys that were kind of the best of the best in their junior leagues coming together and fighting for these, fighting for these uh, hallowed spots in the NHL. And, uh, and they're still young, right? You're still making mistakes. So you're going to get a few chances every game, but it's uh, it's definitely a more physical game, I would say than Europe. Uh, for sure. And like you said, I guess, I mean, unstructured, I think is valid. I mean, it's, it's less structured just because you, you have guys maybe trying to do more, maybe just still trying to figure the game out a little bit. Um, whereas that Swedish league, there is, even in Germany, right? There was like, it was a different game there because everyone was older. They'd got, they'd usually come from somewhere else or it stayed yeah. there. And it's, you know, it's wise, wise old veterans playing the game. When, when you went to Sweden now, so you're at an all time high, I would assume with confidence. Um, you must be feeling really good about your game. You kind of figured out Austria out, uh, you know, had a, had a great, great season there. And now you're going to this league that you knew was good. You knew it was an uptick. There's probably some pressure on you because they gave you some, gave you some money. How were you feeling from a mental side going to a new country, new league, didn't know anybody? Uh, how was, how was that process of showing up for camp? Yeah, I was nervous for sure. There was a lot of pressure because of who I was, the money they were giving me as an import there, you're expected to produce. Um, I just remember my first couple of days, maybe first week, showing up for training camp, and and these guys were serious. This was a big change from Austria, where you know guys would show up and work pretty hard, and you had some talented guys, but you know third or fourth line guys are pretty suspect. You could expose them in a game, whereas top to bottom rosters in Sweden, I mean these guys were good. You had fourth line guys that were that could be first line guys in Austria. Their talent level. Um, these guys were just monsters in the gym every single day. And I'd say this is probably when my, um, my appreciation for work in the gym started to really blossom was at this point where the trainer was just hardcore. He made us work out and do crazy stuff all the time. I mean, they'd fly imports in in the summertime to do fitness testing and blood testing. Uh, you'd show up in, in training camp and you'd have some pretty serious fitness testing which we never really had that in Austria. You get a little bit of fitness testing, you know, how many push-ups you can do or whatever, but not really serious stuff. So um, I just remember thinking in my first few days, like this is this is a big step up. This is going to be hard. And this is another point in my career where I just had to learn to adjust. I had to learn to adapt to the different style of play. Um, the style in play in Austria was pretty open-ended, pretty – um high offense high octane <clears throat> where you'd get a couple of two on ones a game definitely a handful of three on twos whereas in sweden like you said you have these older guys that have played wherever in the nhl or high-end european leagues and then you have these high-end young swedes that are just you know uber talented and working crazy hard in the gym and they lock it down defensively this is super structured you have some huge awesome goaltenders in this league and i always joke that you know a swedish hockey league game that ends one to nothing is the best hockey game ever in sweden they love that if it's a one nothing game it's just super structured super defensive 
and you just can't create offense. It's super hard. And I've seen a ton of guys come and go from the American Hockey League or even the NHL and end up in the Swedish Hockey League and they'll whatever they'll message me and be like, how did you have success in this league? This league is so hard to create offense, which it is. I, I don't know. I must have just had a lot of chemistry with my line mates and and had some some luck and blessings that year, but it was a hard league to play in. And I remember the the first month or so, I was a big eye opener for me in terms of I really need to change my game and become a well rounded two way player to have success here. So you're you you show up there. I mean, you, knowing it was going to be harder, you know, like you you had that expectation, of course. Uh, but you're also like now balancing a whole new country and a whole new culture. And you're also balancing new teammates in a new language. I mean, a lot of those Swedes do speak English, uh, but how, like, did you take it all at once or was your focus just on like trying to, trying to understand the hockey or you're trying to get friendly with the guys or I'm just, I'm asking that question because for me, it was always a tough one when I got traded, like, where does your focus go? Right. Because like you want to be liked and you want to fit in and you want to be one of the boys. Sometimes that doesn't always mean showing up two hours before practice and working on your, on your game though, and trying to get better at that. You know, it's it, sometimes it, it, there's differences. How was your approach showing up there? Yeah, I think it was different than my approach in Austria for sure. I know my wife and I kind of dove headfirst into the Austro-German culture, uh, Hungarian culture. We, we tried to learn the language uh, during a couple of years in Filok, Austria. We were we were taking German lessons and just diving right into the culture and trying to really enjoy that part of the experience, which is huge. It's important for North American to do that, to have some sort of comfort and feel happy over there. But in Sweden, it became more of a job for sure. This It became more serious. Like I need to focus more on the hockey, focus more on the weight room, <clears throat> what I'm doing to get better. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to be one of the guys and I, it, it just so happens. I'm sure you can speak to this too on these European teams. You just naturally congregate with the other North Americans. That's just how it is. <clears throat> the Swedes, like you said, they speak really good English. They try to include you, but you just you automatically befriend all the other Canadian or, or Americans that are over there. And and I was no different than that. I, I had a really good friend in Brian Wilsey. He played in the NHL for four or 500 games you know, with L.A. and Colorado. He sat next to me in the dressing room and he probably laugh at me for saying this, but I think he kind of became my mentor a little bit that year and um, just kind of taught me the ropes in terms of, you know, how to treat my body, how to take care of my body in a serious professional way, not just, you know, haphazardly rolling out after a game, but really taking it seriously. And and I remember just picking his brain a lot about, uh, you know, Wilsey, tell me about life in the NHL. Tell me about the flights. Tell me about the cookies you get on the plane. Tell me about the Ritz Carlton. You know, I remember just bugging him constantly about what it was like to play in the NHL. And he, I think he loved it. He told me all kinds of fun stories about, his time in the NHL. And I think that's really when it started to be like, wow, that would be pretty cool to experience something like that. I, I don't know if I can do that, if that'll ever happen for me, but if I can, that would be a really cool experience. That sounds fun. Oh, I'm, I'm smiling listening to that because I'm getting goosebumps. I mean, I think it, how, how much of that was building your belief or, or, you know, contributing to the fact of, of where you got, you know, I mean, from the mindset side, you mentioned the mental strength earlier and I'm a big, 
proponent of the of the of the mind right like what we believe can happen uh we have to believe it for it to happen a lot of times and you asking those questions and being curious and being like childlike almost in your approach right you mean like is totally. is super innocent but like really awesome at the same time because a lot of people are just too proud right or too you don't want to expose that vulnerability of yeah that i am curious that i am interested that i want to know so i mean there's a lot of levels to that that i just love um did you think it was a contributing factor for you be, be ending up where you did? I mean, in the moment, I, I wouldn't have thought that way. But looking back now, I feel like it was. I mean, I just and like you said, I was childlike about it. But this was like my first real exposure to a, a full time NHL or, you know, like I said, he played four or five hundred games. He'd been in the NHL for a, quite a long time. In my perspective at that point, I'm like, just tell me about it. Will tell me what it's like there? That That's like. That's the glory land, you know, that's where every hockey player wants to play. Tell me what it's like there. And I just remember eating it up, you know, just spoonful by spoonful, just like, oh, this sounds the best. I want to I want to experience that. And, and I've kind of started to reflect on that a little bit more recently and just how I don't know how into it I was, how much I loved hearing about that. And I think that kind of played a factor in driving me to just, OK, I want to experience that. I want to text Wilsey and three years a picture of the chocolate chip cookies on the private jet going to the Ritz Carlton, whatever. I want to show him that. And I want to experience that too. Yeah. Good for you. I think curiosity is a big trait. It was one that I talk about a lot and being allowing yourself to be curious, you know, and allowing yourself to ask those questions. And that's one thing, uh, maybe I'm such a big proponent of it now is because that's something that I, I couldn't bring myself to do. And I was sitting in a locker room with Matt Sundin or, you know, John Van Beesbrook or these guys that, you know, I mean, I was curious. I, I am a naturally curious guy, but I just couldn't bring myself to ask the questions. And, and I don't know why, you know, I really don't know at the end of the day, but you talked about having mentors and having people role, uh, you know, about role models. And, and I think experience does mean a ton, you know, and if, if you can sit beside somebody and ask them, uh, get their get their opinion and have somebody to you know that you can walk in their shoes a little bit it helps you envision that thing it helps you understand it once you get there a little more clearly uh, I think there's a lot to that so I mean it's definitely a message that I say now to anyone I'm like yeah I mean ask the questions you want to ask I think it's a I think it's a great thing to do when um, did you have any adversity at this point like you know so you show up there you, you, you recognize that man I got to go to the gym there's you know I got to get stronger these guys are damn good uh, was there at any point, like, did you start off hot? Like you had a great season. Was there any point where you were like, started to question yourself for your abilities? No, I started off cold. I started off, uh, I think I scored in the first game, but I only had maybe one or two points in, I don't know, the first five games or so, which is all right. But, you know, by import standards in the Swedish league, they want you performing at a high, high level. <clears throat> and I just wasn't there yet. And I was starting to feel that heat from, the press, the media, the fans in Aribu, the name of the city, and, you know, even my teammates a little bit. And I remember them starting to rumble a little bit. I remember one of the other imports, I won't say his name, being like, I, I was kind of standing off the side and he didn't know I was there, but I don't know if this Ryan guy is going to pan out. You know, I don't know about him. And so I started to feel these things. And obviously my head started to spin a little bit, like maybe I'm not cut out to play here. Um, it only lasted maybe five games and I started to have a lot more success. I moved up from the third line to the first line and found a lot of great chemistry with a couple of the Swedes there and things kind of took off from there, but it's kind of fun to look back or funny to look back and think about those. It was maybe a week or two where, you know, I was uh, struggling a little bit and starting to, to question my own abilities. So it's, 
Um, I don't know how I really got through that. I think I just kind of learned and adapted as I went there in terms of um, figuring out what it took to play at that level. But um, eventually things turned around. Yeah, well, it is interesting, just even the fact that you said you went from a struggling, I mean, using your words, third third line scenario to end up getting put on the first line with a couple of Swedes. Do you think that opportunity was, how do you think that opportunity came about? And then you found you found that clicking. I think they put us together on the third line and then all of a sudden we just started scoring left and right and we became the first line more or less is how that how that went and our chemistry just soared and we were scoring tons of goals and and all of a sudden you know guys weren't questioning me anymore and the fans weren't questioning me anymore and and uh, you know how it goes once your confidence starts to build it's the snowball effect and I just started to feel like okay now this is how I have to play to, to play here this is how I have to play to be effective this is going to help me to get better, uh, more well-rounded, playing both sides of the, the puck, you know, stronger on face-offs. That was huge there, um, which is harder to do because you're not allowed to use your feet. Where in North America, you can use your feet to win draws. So I worked on my face-offs a lot, which has been huge for me in my NHL career as well. So I just started to, you know, things started to kind of take off a little bit and everything started to come together. All right, we're just going to take a short break from our conversation here with Derek Ryan to tell you about a little bit about the topics here that we're talking about. You know, we always we're talking about character a lot. It seems like we're talking about mindset and and mental toughness a lot here, along with other characteristics uh, like perseverance and resilience and fighting through adversity and all this great stuff. If you are a hockey player or a hockey parent there and you want to find out more about what you can do to increase those things, one of the great places to stop is uh, upmyhockey.com. So that's my website, upmyhockey.com. There's lots of great information on there. There's also two courses that I've released uh, this year. One is a character course called Championship Character. This is where we look at character as a high-performance tool. Uh, It's not only an amazing a place to start your foundation as a human and as a hockey player. But I talk about it as a tool to get better and how you can develop your character further and how these how this development is going to affect you beca- uh, by becoming a better hockey player. So that's a real cool course. If you're interested in that, check it out there. Uh, I also have my Mindset Master Series, which goes uh, through four weeks of great stuff, building uh, building the belief set required to be your best. Uh, really proud of both those programs. So if you want to check those out uh, and any of the merchandise here that I've been wearing on my head and on my chest uh, that you guys have been asking about, that's where you find that too. So upmyhockey.com, a little blurb uh, for that, little self-promotion. Hope you guys are enjoying this episode. Now back to the conversation with Derek Ryan. No, good for you. I was going to ask about the face-offs because, I mean, that, that has been a hallmark of, of you as an NHLer now and something that teams put massive significance on because, you know, puck possession is a huge thing and and trust in the fact of, you know, winning a draw in any zone is, is a big deal. What the player you are now as an NHLer, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't the player you were in, in uh, Sweden. It's, it's hard. Like sometimes that doesn't transfer over. Right. And, and, right. and, and I get that the roles change and everything else that the little things you're talking about, they're learning the other side of the puck, you know, working on the faceoffs. Um, those aspects are probably the aspects that have now allowed you 
to be where you are. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? Like those the the, the subtleties of the game and the uh, and the nuances of the game, which which seems to be some of your really strong calling cards, have, have seemed to earn you your spot. Is that is that true? Yeah, hundred percent. I think that, and I picked up some of these traits. You know, every step of the journey, I, you know, face-offs and the other side of the puck in Sweden. Um, kind of more offensive ability, being able to make plays in Austria. I played with some great goal scorers both in Sweden and Austria. So my playmaking ability definitely, you know, increased in those areas. But uh, there's, it's just so hard to make it in the NHL as a skill guy. If, and I see, even now, I see tons of guys in our organization and tons of NHL organizations where they're high-end skilled. But if you're not a high-end skill guy that's good enough to be in the top six, and you're going to be in the bottom six, how are you contributing? How are you contributing in that, that bottom six category when you're not really expected or trying to score as much as maybe those guys in the top six, and you are expected to contribute in different factors, whether it's penalty kill, whether it's blocking shots, whether it's face-offs, whether it's being able to just, you know, grind players, grind other lines down on the, that bottom six role, which is a lot harder to do. And I think that a lot of guys struggle with that, transition like okay i'm not quite a top six guy but how do i be effective as a bottom six guy and i think those skills that i acquired along my way especially in sweden most likely you know helped me to to figure out and carve out my own role as a bottom six guy or a middle six guy in the nhl right a, a versatile six i'd call you because I, yeah. I think that's one of your strengths too from from you know the little bit of the research that i did and the people that i talked to is that yeah you mean you are probably a, i mean I think you were a third line center mostly, right, for, in, yeah. in Calgary this past season. And but you're a guy that could go up, up and down the lineup, right? I mean, you you're versatile enough to go up. And I think from my from my take on it, and just now being a fan and being removed from the game, I think that's a bit of a difference between an NHL of let's say 10, 15 years ago to the NHL of today. Is that the roles? There's still roles for sure. There's roles, but the bottom six were usually like they were definitely less skilled. And they were just bigger and stronger and they would do different things kind of better than the top six. But now I think it seems the bottom six are skilled, but they have to learn and be willing to do different things. Like I think greater depth from a skills uh, sign in, a, in an NHL team these days. Do you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think that the bottom six now in the NHL is full of guys that are extremely talented. Um, I mean, we have them in Calgary. We've signed a couple of them this offseason too. Uh, there's Joachim Nordstrom, who's been a bottom six guy his whole career in the NHL. He's a Swedish guy. But, I mean, he has unreal hands. He skates faster than 95% of the guys in the NHL. But he's found a way, just like I have, to provide something at that in that bottom six, whatever we want to call it, role, where he can block shots, he can kill penalties, and do all these things that in my opinion, and maybe I'm biased because I am one of these guys, but I think these are the guys that are almost the most important in winning a Stanley Cup. They, these guys are what win teams Stanley Cups. The, the guys like Nordstrom, the guys like, you know, whatever, the bottom six guys that are able to do these important things all the way through a whole cup run. And and it's just, I think it gets over overlooked a lot by a lot of people. Yeah, I think it does too. And well, I mean, I guess it depends on who you're talking to. I mean, I think a guy like Patrick Maroon is a great example right now, uh, you know, who's now one, two uh, and, and just brings that element. He's not playing top line minutes, but he's bringing an element of whatever it is, grit, passion, you know, whatever those words are that you need to go the distance. And 
I know I'm, I'm glad you bring that up. But there's a hard thing to do, though, I think, and maybe you can speak on this, is all everybody in the NHL has scored goals somewhere else or has gotten points somewhere else. And, and usually that's what fires you up as a player is that scoring is that contributing on offense so like when you have to now be unbelievable in your own end or you got to be a great face-off guy or be a really good shot blocker that's not maybe why you started playing hockey in the first place you know so like to find a passion in that do you ever really find a passion in that or is it just like a sense of accountability and ownership and pride that you know what this is what i do and i do it well yeah that's an interesting question i don't know I mean, I think there's a little bit of passion for sure. If there's not any passion, you're not going to be any good at it. <clears throat> but um, I think that you're just able to accept that role and swallow that, you know, swallow your pride a little bit, take a little slice of humble pie, which some guys aren't able to do that. They're not able to say, okay, I'm not a top six guy, but I should be a top six guy. So making a top six guy they're able to say, okay, I'm not a top six guy, so I can do, I'll do whatever it takes to be in the NHL and to contribute to my team's success. And it's the guys that are able to do that, to say that in their own head and say that to their teammates too, or prove it to their teammates by their actions on the ice. That's, those are the guys that have those, the success in those roles, you know, and they find those roles and coaches and GMs see that they're, they're smarter than most. And they see that. And that's why they keep getting signed in different, different places for different, um reasons but those the, that's that's why right there right no i know because a lot of guys can't right they're not willing to shift and pivot or they can't pick it up that late in the game either i mean i think that's a big thing because what we're talking about here aren't aren't easy things to learn like you've you've talked about working on your face-offs for years now right and to get to the spot where you're at uh and that's for me that was the underlying message that maybe now isn't so subtle because i'm throwing it in everybody's face that's listening right now but it's like the lesson to kids is, you know what? There's a lot of great hockey players out there that can score goals. And the quicker you can embrace getting the puck out and at the blue line, learning how to PK, right? The face-offs, blocking shots, like be versatile because you're probably going to be asked to do that at some point when you want to level up, you know, to get yourself into that top six role. And when you're trying to figure it out on the job, that's not a great time to, to do it. <laughs> and those are the, the kind of the ugly things that are not so fun to work on, right? All the kids want to go out and work on their one-timers and their slap shots going bar down and whatever it is, but it's a lot harder and a lot less fun to go work on your face-offs, to go work on picking up rims off the wall and making a play, to work on you know all these little things that a bottom six or whatever you want to call them role, role player has to do. And if you're not able to do that, then you're just not going to be able to play in that role. Yeah, I agree. And if you're not Connor McDavid, you're going to have to figure out how to do it. You know, like there, there's just like a there's a small select few that really don't have to necessarily work on that aspect. But to get to that, to get to any uh, to any, you know, hallowed ground of hockey to get paid for, you're going to have to figure that out at some point. So, no, I, I'm glad you bring that up. What about um, what about your journey back? So you have this we, we talked we touch on your, your your year in Sweden, maybe not in great detail, but I mean, you light it up there. You know, you, you win you win another uh, MVP award. I don't know what it's called there. And now it sounds like, I don't know if one or two or multiple NHL teams now have Derek Ryan on their, on their radar. What was, what was that off season like for you? And uh, was it a hard decision to come back to North America? Yeah. One of the craziest off seasons I've ever had for sure. Um, I had a few, several, I'd say like three ish, probably NHL teams that expressed interest in having me come back, which, um, you know, looking back on our previous conversations, this is when the NHL kind of starts to come back on the radar a little bit like, wow, 
you know, whatever, how many years ago I was in Edmonton playing the U of A and then the Austria and now, okay, maybe this, maybe this is legit. Maybe this can actually happen. But, um, it was hard. It was a hard decision. And if I'm being totally honest, I probably was the last person that wanted to come back to North America, even after all my Brian Wilsey conversations and all that. I, I was kind of stubborn. I was like, no, this is, I've carved out my career in Europe. I can do this for a long time. I can make a lot of money. Um, if I go back and play in North America, I'm going to have to take a two-way contract. I'm for sure going to have to start in the American Hockey League. I'm going to have to take a huge pay cut to start in the American Hockey League. Um, not to mention a different style of play and just a cutthroat political world of the the NHL which is just inevitable that's the way it is and so I don't know if I really want to partake in that and all the credit to my family you know my wife was a huge advocate like no Derek wait a second you've dreamed your whole life of playing in the NHL this is your last this is your chance if you say no now it's I mean you're closing the door right this is it's not going to happen again so this is your one chance um you know swallow your pride a little bit take a chance and see what happens you know worst case scenario is it doesn't work out and you go back to europe and and restart there and just kind of you know whatever take off where you were already so there's no harm done pretty much so huge huge props to them for pushing my uh, humility down my throat a little bit and and making me make that decision and obviously uh <laughs> don't regret that decision now but it was hard at the time well, I, and I bet you, even after you pressed the go button and said, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this, like you must have, like there, I don't know what type of, you know, how, how your brain works up top, but I would, I would sit, I would, I would think that there had been some, oh my God, am I doing the right thing still, right? Like, what am I getting myself into as you're, as you're coming back and going to camp? Oh, for sure. And then there's halfway through the season where I'm still in the American Hockey League and grinding it out there and then you have the mental state where you're like did i make the right decision what am i doing here i'm making peanuts to what i was making over there am i really gonna get my shot it's all politics here i'm an old guy there's no way it's gonna happen i made the wrong decision <laughs> that is wild because you're right i mean it's it's hard it's a hard door to break down for anyone even even for a top draft pick you know i mean it's not it's not an easy place to get to you and, and those guys are going to get a little bit longer looks and they're get a little bit more shakes right and that that's just the way the way that world works so for you coming in there at that stage it was going to be a harder road for you to uh to hoe how about your first camp I mean, I'd love to hear about that because, I mean, I think you're the first guy I've ever talked to that has their first NHL camp at like 27 or whatever, however old you were. Like, what was that experience yeah. like? 28. 28 years old, first NHL camp. Yeah, that was, um, looking back on that now, it was pretty wild. I remember showing up a couple of days early and, you know, I see in the dressing room, there's Cam Ward, there's Jordan Stahl, there's Eric Stahl, there's Ron Hainsey, there's these guys that, you know, I, I maybe I haven't idolized those guys in particular, but kind of just because they're pretty big studs in the NHL. I've idolized them for the last handful of years. And, you know, there they are in person. Can I play against them? Am I good enough to be on the ice with those guys? You know, you have those mental thoughts, especially coming from my journey. You know, um, I should be in Austria. I shouldn't be playing in this NHL training camp. You know, what am I doing here? definitely some mental obstacles to get over there and it was hard it was an adjustment for sure it was hard for me to to really adjust to that and I don't think 
I don't think many guys get over that and I'm no different. I don't think we get over that until you're able to put yourself in that position and say, you know what? No, they're human beings just like me. They're putting on their skates just like me. They, we just have to go out there and I'm just as good as they are. I fit in. I'm just, I can play with them. And once you're able to kind of not, it's a, it's a fine line between arrogance and, you know, being just confident in yourself, but you have to be confident in yourself. And once you're able to find that, and once I was able to find that is when I was able to, to stick in the NHL full time. So that wasn't this year though. So I mean, at camp, how, how did camp go for you? Was it successful in your mind? Were you, were you nervous? Like how did that, how did that whole, whole scenario go? And did you get any, did you get any exhibition games by the way? I did. Yeah, I played, I played, I don't know, four or so exhibition games. I was actually one of the two last two guys sent down to the American hockey league, which I don't know if that was better or worse, but at the, at the end of the day, you end up in the same spot. And I remember, you know, being pretty frustrated, even though my mental expectations were that I was going to start in the American Hockey League, which probably wasn't the best mental state to be in, but I was probably just a realist at that point. And so the day I got sent down, I remember being pretty disappointed and frustrated, but at the same time saying, okay, this is, you know, I knew this was going to happen. This is why I came here. I had a really good camp. Uh, everybody in the, the organization, Ron Francis, Bill Peters, uh, you know, the, the hurricane players all had great things to say and we're like, we're, hopefully we'll get to see you at some point this year. Um, so, you know, my hopes were still pretty high and I felt pretty good about myself. I think I'd set a pretty good foundation for myself in my first training camp. Oh, good for you. And you mentioned the name Bill Peters again, and, and we didn't touch on your decision factor. You said three teams were, were calling on you, you know, and so Bill Peters, you guys had that history in, in Spokane and now here he is head coach in, in Carolina, did I assume that played a role in your decision uh, of, of where you wanted to sign? And if so, how much? Yeah, probably huge. That was probably um, one of the bigger decisions, one of the bigger factors in that decision, just because I knew at this point, I've talked about, you know, being me being weary of the, the politics of the, the NHL game. And I just wanted to make sure I was going somewhere where I had someone in my corner a little bit, you know, I had someone that would vouch for me that had belief in me. I wasn't going to a, a completely fresh, clean slate where nobody knew who I was. Um, at least in the Hurricanes organization, Bill Peters knew who I was. He knew the kind of person I was. He knew the character that I brought to a dressing room and he knew, um, yeah, just what kind of player I was. So I think that was a huge part of, of that decision for sure. Yeah, that is a big part. Did you have a chance to talk to to uh, to Bill before you signed or afterwards? Yeah, before uh, I think they were kind of one of the later ones. There was two other teams to begin with, and then um, Bill called me, and we just had a brief conversation. He was like, "Hey, Doc, I want to get on get in on the action and and try to get you signed." I heard you had great success in Sweden, and kind of just snowballed from there. So, um, talked to him then, and then obviously as camp progressed and as I got sent down, he. He talked to me, guys kind of took me aside and explained where he was at with things and, and where things stood and um, just kind of tried to, you know, help me along the way a little bit because it's pretty tough going through your first NHL training camp at any age, but 28 for sure is a different experience than most, I think. Right. So you mentioned the first year, I mean, you had, uh, looks, I mean, AHL is not an easy league to score in either. You mean 55 points in 70 games. looks like you had a pretty good campaign there. 
uh, and you did get your first taste of NHL ice time. So you you mentioned you mentioned a, what sounded like a dark time. You know, like you're halfway through the season. You're one of the last cuts. You're wondering what the hell's going on. Did I do the right thing? Maybe other guys are getting called up in front of you. Uh, and then the phone does ring. Uh, describe that experience and 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 how that all came to fruition. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things to talk about for sure. The the these I don't know what three day period here is probably one of the most vivid hockey memories that I'll I'll carry with me forever. But um, yeah, you talk about going through the dark times of the season, kind of battling, grinding, other guys getting called up, being pretty frustrated. Um, the Hurricanes end up being a little farther out of the playoff race. I think they trade Eric Stahl at the trade deadline. And bam, all of a sudden I'm on a flight home from playing the Manitoba Moose and the equipment guy comes up and taps me on the shoulder. Hey, Doc, you're getting the call up. You're playing in New Jersey tomorrow night. And, uh, you know, talk about a cool feeling. Um, But we're also in the middle of a commercial flight and I have zero cell service. There's no internet on this flight. I mean, when you get that kind of news, the first thing you want to do is, you know, text your wife and text your mom and dad and sister and whoever else, all your family and let them know. So I, I had to wait another hour or so just with all these emotions just kind of bubbling to the surface and um, finally get to some cell service uh, on the ground and uh, just a cool 24 hours, but hectic 24 hours too, where we're scrambling to organize a flight for my dad and my sister from Spokane to get to, to New Jersey for the game, uh, flights for Bonnie and our son Zane to come from Charlotte to get to New Jersey, um, calls from you know Bill Peters, Ron Francis, all these people reaching out to me and, you know, through amidst all this, I'm feeling pretty nervous. Be like, wow, I'm going to play in the NHL. This is, this is really cool, but this is kind of scary at the same time. You know, this is a, a culmination of a crazy lifelong journey to get to where I am now and, and uh, end up playing in the game. I remember the, the bright lights of the national anthem, just looking around like, wow, this is, this is crazy. This is it. You know, this is the big leagues. And uh, Bill Peters had me on the second PP unit and uh, ended up, you know, taking a little drag flank off the half wall, taking it to the middle and scoring low blocker on Corey Schneider for my first NHL goal and my first NHL game. And wow. just, just a crazy moment there where, I mean, you can't even explain and describe those emotions in, in words, right? It's uh Hard to hard to really explain that, but I remember looking up in the stands, you know, tears in my eyes, and I'm I'm sure I know there was lots of tears being shed in the section, whatever it was, with my family up there, and uh, just a crazy moment to you know along this whole journey to get to that moment where you score first goal and my first goal in my first game, just like wow, it doesn't get any better than that. Oh my goodness, yeah, I love hearing that story and have your family there and have them be able to come in and share that with you. Super, super special. Did you end up winding down the season then with um, with Carolina that year? Uh, so I ended up just playing like a couple of games and um, I think I got sent up and down a bunch of times because they were trying to get me to play all the Charlotte games too because they were in a tight playoff race and then trying to get me in some games. I think I ended up getting a concussion somewhere along that journey. So that ended my, I mean, there was like one game left in Charlotte that I missed and that was kind of how the season ended. I think I only played two games in the NHL at that point, though. Gotcha. So you had your taste uh, that year. You, you Pods, I better go grab a charger. My phone's going to die. Is that all right? <laughs> yeah, no worries. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Um, 
Yeah. So you, so you, you've had your taste. You've had, you've had your cookie as you called it. You've had the, you've been on the charter flight. You've had the cookie. You've stayed in the hotel. You've, you've been a part of what that feels like. Now it's the off season. And I assume you have kind of a new approach to, uh, to what that off season looks like. And even your mental approach, maybe to, to what, to what it, that camp is going to look like and, and what you think is going to be successful or not. You know, you, you mentioned the first time through, you pretty much thought, felt you were going to start in the AHL. Did you have a different expectation the second time through? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, a little bit for sure. I felt like I'd established myself um, in the organization. Then also kind of in my own mind, like, Hey, I can play there. I, I can play in the NHL. You know, I've been there. I've seen what it's like. It's, it's really hard, but I think like I can play there, you know, I considered, I think I figured that out in my own mind. Um, but that being said, I also, I mean, it's not like I was getting a one-way contract at this point and getting another two-way contract with no guarantee that I'm going to get any NHL time. They start signing guys to fill those NHL roles on one-way contracts. So, you know, at the same time, I'm kind of like, wow, this is, I have to, I'm going to have to grind it out a little bit again. I'm going to have to earn my spot. It's not just going to be given to me like nothing is in the NHL, right? You have to earn it. And so definitely wasn't like all of a sudden I'm an NHL or, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm there. It's, uh, it, the work started again, the next training camp, you know, I started in Charlotte again and had to kind of work my way up. So it was, it wasn't just given to me at that point again, at that point. So it's kind so of, you didn't, that's what I was wondering, because I saw that I saw some AHL games there. So at a camp, you didn't make the team again. You got sent down and it, is this the second contract then? So you signed a one, one year deal the first time and you signed a, you signed another deal in the off season <laughs> after that first season. Yeah, that's correct. So it was another one year, two way contract that year with uh, obviously more money in the American league. Cause I proved myself in North America but at the same time, no guarantee to play in the NHL. Gotcha. Gotcha. So then you start and then, and you had like, from a points perspective, again, it's just a hockey DB stat line. It doesn't really tell tell you all the details, but you were over a point a game there. So you had 13 points in nine games and that was, I guess, enough to impress or, uh, you know, the brass. And they said, Hey, let's bring this guy up. Or was there an injury that helped that process too? Um, hmm, yeah, interesting. Obviously, I played really well myself and Brock McGinn at that point. We'd gotten called up together originally the year before, and this second year we got called up together as well. I don't know. I think there, there must have been some sort of injuries. We'll have to look into that. I'm not 100% sure. But I know that Carolina kind of struggled out of the gate, so they were looking for a little bit of a, a shakeup as well. And then as Brock and myself got called up, they started to win and obviously in the NHL, you're in the business of winning. So you're going to keep the guys in the lineup that are helping you win. That's great. And I mean, from a stat line too, I mean, I, I don't know what type of minutes you were playing, but it looks like you were productive. Like you, you had a, had a successful time when you were there. Yeah, that was, um, I don't think I always get asked the question, you know, when I felt like I was solidified in the NHL and I don't think that whole year I felt that way. I felt like I was still, you know, earning everything that I got. I, I was playing, eventually ended up playing a lot of minutes with Jeff Skinner and Lee Stempniak. We kind of had a lot of chemistry and that line took off quite a bit. Um, and Skins is a pretty high-end offensive talent in the NHL. So that was a blessing for sure for me and um, had some success there, but definitely was still, you know, on edge just about every day, nervous for practice, nervous for 
whatever when it looked like they were going to send guys down or whatnot. And I was very aware of all the, the politics of when they can send guys down and after how many games it's harder for them to send down, send guys down and, and that kind of stuff too. So there's a lot of stuff going on in your brain through all this too. It's, it's a, as much mental as it is physical at that point. Sure. Yeah, that, that, that's a grind. And the thing that I, the words I never heard at, at the NHL level was was get a place. So, I mean, you getting called up from the AHL, you're staying in, in a hotel, which, I mean, I don't know if, if, if people understand that or not, but like you don't, you're in a hotel, like that's that, that's where that's where home is and you don't know when it's ever going to change or when you're going to get sent down or whatever. And that's part of the mental grind too. When did you get the tap to say, hey man, go get in a condo or an apartment or did you that season? Yeah, I did eventually that season. Um, I think it's interesting you say. I don't know if people realize that. I don't think they do. I don't. I don't think people realize how how hard it is. And as athletes, we're kind of glorified. We're put on this pedestal, but we're also human beings. I mean, I had a family. I recently, before that season, we'd have our had our second child in in Spokane. So you know, my wife Bonnie's alone in Charlotte doesn't hardly know many people, doesn't have any family nearby, all of her families in Spokane. So she's grinding it out in her own way in Charlotte by herself. Meanwhile, I'm living in a Hampton Inn in Raleigh and, you know, there's no kitchen, there's no microwave, there's no fridge. If there was a fridge, it was like this big. And so I'm eating out for every meal and uh, it's it was a grind for sure. But as I said before, I was well aware of all the CBA um, rules and stuff. There's the first 28 days that you have to spend in the hotel. And then after those 28 days, they can extend it for another 28 days, which they did. So it was 56 days or so in a hotel. And I think it must have been on day. I let it go a couple of days after like 59 or 60 days. I'm like, ah, I'm just going to call Ron Francis, which is I can't believe I did this. But. I call Ron Francis, who's the GM of the team, right, at the time. And I think I'd been doing pretty well. You know, I'd been playing with Jeff Skinner, Lee Stemniak, and been getting a lot of points, and the team had been winning. So I must have had some some confidence at that point. And I just said, hey, you know, I don't know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I've been in the hotel for 60 days, and I just want to know if I can get a place. And he's like, I'll call you back in five minutes. And five minutes later, he said, yep. Doc, you're good to find a place, and that's the that's the big ticket right there, where you where you get the the nod to find your own place in the NHL city. That's a that's a big feeling. Oh, that's awesome! I have a huge smile just thinking about that. Like that, like I said, I never heard those words, and you're kind of waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and 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 I never ha- was able to go get a place. But for you to to have the cojones, man, to make that phone <laughs> call, I can't believe it. Oh my gosh. Um, but you obviously you must have been in a good spot. I mean, I don't think you're making that call if you were, you know, in and out of the lineup and healthy scratch and you're yeah. probably just grateful for every day. But I mean, at that stage, you're like, well, I'm going to do this and uh, good for you. And did uh, what was that? What was even that search like? Yeah, I mean, like, that's an interesting thing, too, because you have another year left. But you're still in the two way. Um, <laughs> you're not going to the penthouse, I guess. Eh? <laughs> I mean, it's super hard at that point, right? Cause it's, I don't know what it was it must have been in January. So there's a few months left in the season. It's pretty hard to find a place that's going to give you a two or three month uh, lease. And then, you know, in the playoffs, you're going to get month and month after that. So yeah, I don't know. I, I've eventually found something. The wife probably found it. I don't even know, but we found a little townhouse in, in North Raleigh. It was perfect. And they, 
you know, they moved all of our stuff from Charlotte, which we didn't have much because we'd only been there for, you know, 10 games or so at the beginning of the season. So it wasn't too much to move, but it was nice to be able to be reunited with the family and be around the kids again. I mean, it's just, like I said, imagine, right. I mean, that's the thing people don't get, like you're in a hotel for almost two months, right. Straight. And you have a family and young kids, you're not getting a chance to see, you don't even have a kitchen. Uh, and that that human element of the game kind of gets forgotten about and and how hard that is let alone now you're playing in the best league in the world and you're supposed to go perform yet everything is kind of in shambles when as soon as you leave the rink man it's a yeah. it is beyond uh mental strength in some scenarios that you that you need and, and uh i'm glad you bring that up because uh some of the stuff just isn't quite right but hey you make sacrifices to to play this great game at that level right and now you're in a different spot which is also cool uh I want to get to that spot because you know, I mean that's now with Calgary and you're definitely an established player and you signed your three-year deal and that's all amazing. But I want to talk about uh, Bill because we've talked about not necessarily Bill Peters, but the the ability to impress somebody enough that they want to for you to be a part of things because a lot of times you do need that guy to open the door for you, at least help to open it so you can like push your way in and prove yourself. And it sounds like Bill was was that uh, advocate for you. Uh, could you speak on that? And then, well, maybe we'll talk a little bit just about Bill now, and and uh, and you mean what your what your feelings are about what sort of what happened with with his own personal history there. Yeah, um, I had nothing but great experiences with Bill, and I couldn't agree with you more. On I think we talked about it already with the coaches. I mean, the same goes for Mike Bay and the Braves and then Eric Thurston with that recommendation to go to Europe and then me making the decision to go to Carolina because of Bill Peters, mostly just to have that connection there. And yeah, Bill, he's a tough coach. He was kind of that old school. I mean, I had the same similar mentality from my junior B coach. I saw it in other places. I went to a a Western League camp in Lethbridge before I went to decide to go to the Chiefs and Brian Maxwell was the coach there. So I saw it there. Babcock was around a lot when I was a kid. So I think he was a little nicer to, to us kids, but I'm sure I still have that, uh, <laughs> that uh, Babcock, you know, aura, if you will. And, and Bill was, was the same. He, he was hard, but if you played the way he wanted you to play, the play he played the way you played the way he wanted whole team to play then he liked you and I think that's how most leaders and most coaches are I mean he might have been a little bit harder than most in terms of demanding that but I think that was also pretty widespread in in most of um most guys experiences in that point coaches were just hard and Mm -hmm. um yeah I feel I felt terrible about what happened to Bill it's um something that's been talked about in my family a lot obviously because bill's been a huge part of of my career in terms of helping me get to the right places obviously i i took advantage of all the opportunities that i was given and did what i needed to but he also helped me get into those opportunities i feel like so yeah um i think we've all done things that we regret in the last 10 years Uh, i think uh Anyone can, that can say that they haven't done something that, that they regret in a decade is probably lying to themselves. But I know Bill is not a, a, a person to hate people, to look down on people. I know that he wasn't a person to um, put people in situations where they would feel subject to whatever racist or anything like that. He, In my experience, I never saw that. I know and... I mean, quite frankly, I had a lot of experiences with Bill Peters in two years in Spokane and 
and several years in Carolina and then at least a couple of years there, a year and a half in Calgary as well. So, yeah, I, I think he's an, uh, a guy of high integrity. I think he obviously regrets what transpired um, years ago and probably regrets how things went here in Calgary as well. But um, all I can say is that I have nothing but good and fond memories of him. He treated me with respect and I never saw him treat anyone else with a lack of respect. No, I mean, thanks for sharing that too, because I think it's easy to get caught up in the headlines, you know, a lot of the time. And, and it's such a world like that. It's a headline based world and people make snap judgments. And, uh, you know, I didn't know Bill personally. The only person I, I knew that it was connected to him was Kevin Sawyer, who you also know, I have a personal connection with because he was assistant coach there. And, and again, Kevin's a guy that I respect, you know, and that's kind of what I go on a lot of times, right? Like who, who do I know? And, and Kevin's a guy that I know, and, and I think he's a character guy and, somebody uh somebody who's a good role model and a mentor for younger kids and and he he said the same thing you you did you know like that uh when that stuff went down he wasn't there he, he has no idea but he knows the type of guy that bill is and he thinks he's a good guy and i think that that should i mean i'm glad you said that because maybe that's not the sentiment to cross hockey right now you know and bill peters is somewhere i have no idea where he is but he'll probably never coach again because of because of the you know something that he did uh, and maybe rightfully or wrongfully so. I mean, I have no idea, and I don't want to make this a political thing. I don't know how that works in this day and age, right? Like, he did something that he shouldn't have done for sure. Um, does that mean he should never coach again? I'm not sure. I guess that's for someone else to decide other than me. But uh, good for you for, for recognizing it because uh, it, it does take uh, – it. We, we don't get by – we don't do this by ourselves. You know, that's that's for darn sure, right? We do need we do need some help, and I'm glad that he was there to help you establish yourself. And now that you are, it's, uh, it's a pretty cool spot. I think we'll close. Washif one. I did talk to Kevin before we got on this conversation. He says he wants his gold medal back. He he said he told me that story of that uh, the Spokane Beer League men's tournament that that uh, <laughs> yeah. that you guys used to play in or whatever. He goes, if it wasn't for Derek, I I would have won first. He's like he took us apart in the championship final. So anyways, he yeah. says hi and and says he wants his medal. <laughs> <laughs> well, Soizy is probably one of the highest character guys I've ever met. So. In terms of character references, it doesn't get much better than that, I don't think, for Bill Peters. That that guy is Kevin Sawyer is like one of the best guys I've met in hockey. So that's awesome. Yeah, he's a good dude. I had the pleasure of playing with him. He was he was my captain one year in Spokane. And uh anyways, yeah, just a salt of the earth type of guy. And his story is an amazing one too, and a past guest here. The fact that he was able to lace it up and put on an NHL jersey is is a phenomenal story of uh of accomplishment. So uh what what my last question is so now you're in this spot. Uh, you've established yourself, like you said, as being a versatile guy that can move up and down the lineup. Uh, great on face-offs. You know, you're doing these things. Now, for you on a personal level, uh, older, you're in your 30s now too, are you still aspiring? Are you still grinding it out to get better? Do you want to be a top six guy? Like, is there a goal for you that you have on your board that's like, you know, I'm not done yet? Yeah, for sure. I think I feel, I think I feel still, still feel like I have that mentality and I mean, you almost have to, I think at this point, Jason, it, it, it's a grind every single day during the year, but it's a grind in the off season too. If you don't have that desire to get better every day, I mean, you're going to, I'm going to work out five, six days a week and that's just going to wear on you. That's not fun. If you don't love it, if you don't want to get better, if you don't believe that there's something more for you, if you want to prove people wrong, whatever your, your motivation factor is, if you don't have that, you're just not going to want to do that. You're not going to want to do it. And, and for me, I definitely have that love, that passion still. I'm not ready to 
to hang them up. I'm ready to continue playing, to continue to evolve and um, adapt and be able to, you know, be effective in different ways in the NHL and play as long as I can. And uh, as far as I see it right now, there's uh, there's no end in sight, but um, I'm just going to continue to have that mentality and see see where I end up. Good for you. Uh, I, I do have to pick it that back with one question now, because now it just came to me that you are now, you know, you're an established four-year, five-year NHL vet. You're in your 30s. You're in uh, kind of a utility role. I've had past guests like Scott Nickel and others that, you know, stayed in the league doing those things really well, but also helping mentor and helping be an example and help role model and bring up these younger prospects and help them get into the league and understand what it takes to be a, to be a pro. Do you feel you're bringing that element to the, to the flames as well? And have you taken on that ownership of, of mentorship for some of these younger guys? Yeah, for sure. I feel like there's young guys in every organization. The flames are no different that need that. Um, Dylan Dubé is one of the guys that jumps out to me on the Flames roster, who's a young guy um, trying to figure out what it means to be a pro. He's immensely talented, going to be a great star in the NHL someday. But guys like that need older guys that have seen different things, different perspectives that can help him grow up and mature a little bit faster because it's, it's hard. Those young guys that come into the NHL right away, they have everything on a, a silver platter and they're glorified, they're wealthy, the women, the whatever it is that are around them, it can be pretty overwhelming. I know it would have been hard for me at that age too. We're all just human beings. So I think that having some well-grounded, mature, experienced guys around those younger guys is priceless. And, and if you want guys to have long careers where they take care of themselves, take care of their bodies, and respect themselves and other people, then I think you need to have guys like that around in a dressing room. I think I've, I've definitely, I definitely grabbed that role, but even more so just doing things like this, doing interviews where kids that aren't in the NHL or kids that are aspiring to be in the NHL can hear whatever it is, my story, my perspective, um, some humility along the way and what it takes, but also that we're real human beings that we have, do we face these, these adversity, adverse times in our lives. And uh, that's huge for not only young NHL players, but young adults everywhere. I think so. I think a lot of people think that it's it's easier for others. I really do think that, you know, especially when, you, when you're when you a 12-year-old kid and you're trying to play on your Bantam team and, and you look up and you see these guys in these NHL jerseys and they're just better than us. They're better than me. You know, like they're, they've, it, it's easier for them. And that's not the case. Everyone has a story and even, even the best of the best have, have, have their stories, you know? So we all, we all have to go through it in our, in our own way and in our own time. And I, it is amazing that you're sharing your experiences and, and, and my past guests as well, because I do think it makes a difference. I think it makes a massive difference uh, whether you're in front of them and saying it or not, or whether they're just hearing it right now, whether they're riding the bike and doing their own thing that, you know what, I got to get through this. And when I do get through this, I'm going to come out stronger and I'm going to come out better. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, I, I want to add, just ask one more question from my own curiosity. When you're talking about a guy like Dylan Dubé, and now you're thinking of yourself as, uh, or maybe you've even been told by the coach, you know, I mean, I don't know how that actually works in Calgary. You know, like whether you're, you're told that we want you to be a mentor or be one of these uh, uh, leader guys. Do you wait for a guy like Dylan Dubé to come to you and seek you out and ask questions? Or do you make that that, that walk across the dressing room and sit down beside him and, and kind of take him under your wing? I think that it happens pretty organically either way. I think that a guy like Dylan, it was pretty easy. He 
Um, he sees me every day. I don't even think you have to have that conversation sometimes. He sees me every day. I'm pretty vocal in terms of my beliefs. I'm a pretty religious guy, which is pretty anti everything else in, um, you know, glorified, wealthy, the, that, the world of that. So I think I stand out in that regard too. So I think that um, naturally people are just interested and they're going to come up to me and talk to me and ask me questions about who I am, where I came from, what I believe, why I believe it. And then that automatically just gives me an opportunity to share whatever it is, a snippet of my story, a snippet of my faith, a snippet of whatever it is that can help them to see a little bit more of reality. Because I think uh, as you play in the NHL, especially at a young age, you get put in this little box where you think that everyone plays in this little box, but you're pretty lucky to be in there actually. So if you have a better perspective of the things that are going on around you, the lives that people, other people are living and how much they would give to be you inside that box. I think that helps guys to realize, you know, how lucky they have it and they don't want to squander that. So there's a lot of different messages that I, I like to share with guys, but um, I think it happens pretty organically. That's cool. Yeah. Gratitude is an amazing amazing emotion and i think the more that we can connect to that uh, the better we are and as hockey players or as or as people even on those down days i mean i'm sure you can think back on the times where you were in the wherever charlotte checkers right feeling down yourself the fact that you were actually though in the ahl and playing in the ahl is a massive gift right and the more we can connect sure. to that you know the better off we are uh that uh i was just thinking with with that whole idea and you talk about being human the, the idea of helping somebody else essentially take your job maybe at some point is a hard thing to do. And, and that's an interesting element of pro sports, especially. And, and, and we talked quite candidly about that with, uh, with Scott Nichol. And he's like, that's essentially what my job was. And I knew it was. I'd sign one-year deals or two-year deals. And I was supposed to bring up the next fourth-line young kid to take my job. And then I'd go somewhere else and do it again. Uh, do you think it takes a t special type of player to be able to embrace like that mentorship side when you know that maybe, you know, maybe that, that this might be the guy who's going to be uh, filling your minutes in, in the next season? Yeah, I think that you just have to realize you're lucky to be there in the first place. So um, I think that people probably see as we talk about this whole journey that I have a pretty unique perspective on all of this. And so if I wasn't going to share that with anybody, I feel like that would be um, almost a sin, right? I think God put me through all this to share it with other people. And uh, I don't think Dylan Dubé is going to be a bottom six guy, so I don't have to worry about that too much right now. I think he's going to be a top six guy for a long time. <laughs> yeah. But um, you just can't really think about that. You just want them to to progress and to flourish. And <clears throat> I mean, I've done that with Andrew Montepani as well, and he's a top six guy now. And there's other guys, too, that maybe aren't going to progress into that role. Garnet Hathaway, who's now with Washington, who's definitely a solid bottom six guy on an NHL roster who, you know, if there's enough jobs out there for all of us, I, I think that um, if you just worry about developing character and uh, integrity within people, then whatever happens, happens. Good for you, man. Good for you. I love that sentiment. Yeah. I mean, it's do the right thing. Right. What is the right thing? What's the right thing for the team? And usually if you do the right thing for the team and, and with the right thing for that guy in the locker room, like you're going to serve yourself and you're going to do the right thing for yourself because uh, that's just the way the world works, I think. So maybe that's a great way to end. Congratulations on your 300th game, by the way. Um, that's an awesome milestone. I know you're probably uh, 
expect him to blow through that. Like you said, you don't see the end in sight, nor should you. Uh, it'll be awesome to get through 400 and uh, and keep rolling. So thanks so much for spending your time with us today, Derek. A um, lot of stuff uh, I know that these these kids can can take and the parents can take too. And even pro athletes, that's the thing. There's a lot of pros that are listening to this. I mean, you can learn. You got to keep learning no matter where you're at. So, um, again, I appreciate it. Real humble, real grateful. Tons of humility there. And I love your story. So thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me anytime. Definitely one of the longer interviews I've ever done, but uh, it went by fast and had a blast. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you once again for being with us here at Up My Hockey. I know there's a lot of programs to choose from, uh, to dive into. It seems like the list is endless. And for you to stick with us to the end here at Up My Hockey, uh, I'm grateful for you and for your time and for, for sharing your, your time with us here. Uh, I know that that conversation was worth your time. Derek's story is one that every aspiring young player should listen to. And uh, just because it's such a movie type story that you wouldn't believe it if you didn't actually see it with your own eyes. Uh, I think everything that Derek stands for is, uh, you know, is is admirable, right? Something that we can look up to. His level of dedication to the game, his passion for the sport, his commitment to being a role model and a mentor and, and how important he feels to spend time on shows like this so he can share his experience so others can benefit. Uh, that isn't something that people just naturally do. And I wanna take time to point that out. The fact that Derek recognizes that, you know what? I can be helpful. My story can be helpful. And I'm gonna take the time to tell it because if it inspires one person, then it's worth telling. So I commend him for doing that. I commend him for sharing. We spoke about a bit in this episode that you know, I truly believe that these conversations are invaluable. And I know as a young athlete growing up and aspiring to be something and wanting to be someplace, that the more of these types of inputs I would have had, the better off I would have been. I've spoken many times that I felt that I wish I would have reached out or found or had some type of a mentor or role model that I would have been able to ask questions to and look up to. And you know what? That's not always the case for everybody. We Not everybody is blessed with a mentor. But you know what? When you find content or a program or a person uh, like this, like you essentially have 43 mentors right now with Derek's episode on this, uh, on this podcast. 43 different stories about how to be great about how to be your best and follow one another, right? Listen, dig in. Like, I just think it is a great tool for parents and for players. So um, we're going to keep finding the stories. We're going to keep bringing up great guests. We're going to keep talking about all the good stuff and, uh, and hopefully make a difference for young players out there and for older players and for people who just want to be better, people who want to uh, contribute. So thanks again for sticking with us. I think the theme of this is perseverance. Um, you know, stick to it in this. Boy, Derek exemplifies that to, to break through after not even really being on anyone's radar at all at 28 years old is, is quite an accomplishment, but he just kept getting better. He just kept going to work. He kept making the most of his opportunities. And here he is back in the greatest league in the world. So love it. Uh, thanks again for being here. Until next time, play hard.